0: back to Highly Respected. I'm your host Scott Greer and today we're going to have another incredible and informative episode for you guys today. So hopefully you enjoy. I'm about to say I think it's gonna be a short episode but watch it be like an hour and 30 minutes because we didn't have a whole lot of news to go over or news that we haven't been over in the past few weeks over the last week in the weekend. So I don't want to get too... Uh, Buried in the weeds there with all the topics. But there is one big topic that happened. I think this was re- ha- uh, was released uh, the day of my podcast. It was either Monday or Tuesday. But there was a new hit country song that's out by Jason Aldean called Try That in a Small Town. And it has qu- created the, quite the ruckus all over the country. Quite the controversy. You know, CMT and MTV have pulled the video because it's too dangerous. It's too uh, outrageous. Too controversial. And it's become a hit among conservatives and it's at the top of the country charts or at least for top of iTunes I don't know if it's hit the top of the country music charts yet the billboard charts that is but it's top the iTunes charts and it's uh, Getting a lot of traffic on YouTube and of course a lot of news attention and the crowds are loving the song Because Al Dean's on tour right now, and he's introduced the song and the crowds go wild for it. So it's definitely resonating with a lot of people uh, the song quality itself, you know, it's not that great, but you know, it's whatever. It's better than rap music. So if you're in the Greerhead Pledge, you know, I, I'm i not, when people have attacked the Greerhead Pledge, it's like, you just want people to listen to black metal and opera. And that's not true. It's pretty much anything but rap music. Um, please don't listen to jazzy <laughs> or old timey uh, magical music, uh, but country and classic rock or just rock in general. You know those are those are some good choices. Classical music, obviously, a great choice. Uh, black metal, obviously, a great choice. But I don't think many people are going to be listening to black metal or metal in general. So you know, just cl- country and classic rock are good choices. So I'd much rather people listen to Jason Aldean than the latest, uh, you know, little pump or whatever. So I have to, so I have to support it. I'm not going to attack the song quality. And compared to most pop country songs, it's. You know, it's whatever. I'm I'm not gonna. My ears aren't gonna be like, wow, this sucks. It's okay. But the song's message and music video are insanely keyed. Uh, at first, there. Uh, let me let. There's the song content, and then there's like the truth cucking about it, which we'll incorporate the c- truth cucking. But I want to overall say this song is very keyed. Its popularity is a very good sign, and I think we sh- we should support the song because. It's like we should let's write a song that's going to appeal to middle Americans, that's about the identity issues, and it's about the things we care about. And it's this song. And the whole song obviously is Try That in a Small Town is about the riots and crime and about how you should try that in a small town, obviously. Um by the song lyrics that you should uh I should you should note. The opening lyrics uh, create, uh, you know, it's almost a very uh, Trump-esque theme. It's like American carnage. Like, sucker punch somebody on a sidewalk. Carjack an old lady at a red light. Pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. You think it's cool, well, act a fool if you like. Cuss at a cop, spit in his face. We definitely don't like that. Stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think you're tough. We'll try that in a small town. See how far you make it down the road. Around here, we take care of our own. You cross that line, it won't take long. For you to find out. I recommend you don't try that in a small town. And the implication is. um, Even by the music video. Because it always shows writers. And like crime. uh, Crime footage. And that happening. It's very much. Very implicitly racial song. I don't think Aldine intentionally did that. Because I mean he's like a good old boy. They generally don't think these things. I mean the average conservative doesn't really think of it as a racial thing. And he, you know, that's the message of the song. But the, impl- the strong implication, it's why liberals are upset. It's like, it's about white country boys uh, taking care of black criminals. And there's even, there is a few footage of that in the music video. There's a clip of, there's a black armed robber of a, gr- of a gas station and a good old boy in the gas station starts pe- beating the shit out of him. the guy flees and it's like celebrating, like, try that in a small town. You're going to meet up with this good old boy. who's going to take care of you. And that's um, you know, we gotta say that's especially keyed message that we would uh, support. That it is. Other images of the video. I mean, the music video is awesome. Uh, you know, it's like the, you know, people fighting the police, and then they're standing up for the police. The so police are fighting them back, and you're like, get them, police. Or just like scenes of crime and disorder and riots, and then it and then it counters that with an image of an idyllic small town life where they're going out hunting and they're helping out their neighbors and they're playing backyard football and they're raising the American flag. And of course, um, it's not very diverse images of small town life in the video. And you're like, this is, it really is like, if you wanted a Trump 2024 campaign music video, it would be this. And I think we'd all be excited about it. And like, you know, it's much better than the message that's, you know, the right is like getting off balance about, you know, they're obsessing a little bit too much about Bud Light. They're getting worked up about like some crazy conspiracy theory. Instead, it's like our country going down the drain. There's all this crime and disorder. You know, they're disrespecting our traditions, our, our great way of life, but we're going to stand up for it. And we've had enough of that. And you should try that in a small town. And the implication is like, you should try that in a white middle America and see how far you get down the road. And uh, you really can't criticize that. Now a lot of the controversies come out from him being in front of the Murray County courthouse. Now there's one thing, I, remember, I This is something I have remembered is like some people have been pronouncing it as Murray County, it's Murray County in Tennessee way, or the Tennessee way of pronouncing it. It's M A, you know, like Mari Povich, uh, the Mari Show, but they pronounce it as Murray, which I remember that as like you know, the, I was I was about to say like Murray County. It's like no no no, they pronounce it a different way. It's like it was Murray County. Um, for some reason, the A is not pronounced. But uh, in and that's the way it was pronounced in Tennessee. It's a county south of, of the county I grew up in, and it's pretty it's pretty rural. It's very white uh, town. But the the county courthouse that they have, where Jason Aldean is performing in front of, it was a, apparently the site of a famous or a semi famous lynching in the 1920s. Obviously, Aldean didn't know that, and nobody involved in the music video knew that. But it's one of these implications, and people are like, this is a pro-lynching song. There's not a pro-lynching anthem. There's not even... Even looking at the lyrics and stuff, it's not pro-lynching. It's just like he's standing in front of a small town, you know, a symbol of a small town courthouse, and it's near Nashville. Uh, It's about a 30-minute drive from Nashville, depending on traffic and how fast you're driving. And, you know, they just went, like, let's go to the nearest small town and, like, you know emblematic feature of a small town they were not going to go to Franklin which is like just like a hoity-toity suburb now they're going to go to Columbia and and they went in front of the courthouse and there is no understanding that the, uh, the election took place there there's always this like way that they like see small things that are happening like with Trump or somebody else like this is exhibiting some Old feature of racist America, like some lynching thing or some figure that no one's ever heard of. None of these people have ever heard of this stuff. They had no idea about the implications or the message that may convey. It's just liberals finding it and just saying that this is intentional. That they were this was intentionally chosen. It's like no, it's just the you know nearest small town courthouse or you know impressive aesthetically looking one that conveys the song's message that they could find and had no. Uh, lynching uh, support our endorsement in the video. Just one of those things they're always going to claim is there, but it's not there. Uh, so going on to the factors, we'll go a little bit some truth cucking here with try that in a small town, which <clears throat> I've said this in a lot of podcasts before. There's this new narrative that, they've, that riots failed in small towns during the 2020 BLM is that a lot of the right has now tried to make the BLM riots a narrative of these small towns rising up and stopping it. And the only evidence they really have is Coeur Idaho, where there wasn't really much of a riot to happen. There was some protesters and there were some counter protesters with AR-15s there. And, you know, that was it. Uh, there hasn't been any other real examples of that. The uh, notion to make is that there wasn't really any riot. Some some of these small towns didn't have quite the riots or violence that the urban areas did. And, you know, of course, there's not going to be good old boys confronting people in Washington, D.C. or New York or Seattle. You know, there isn't going to be those examples of that. Or Minneapolis. But, you know, there were a lot of these protests or demonstrations in some of these small towns. And that actually even occurred in Murray County. Where Spring Hill, which is on the line between Murray and Waveson County and is a becoming more of a suburb, is more country. Twenty years ago it's been more developing as a as a suburb with the growth of Nashville. And it had a lot of, you know, sizable demonstrations of hundreds of people who were And there were such cringe protests. They would have like the cops there walking with them hand in hand. And it's like all white people. There are no black people in Spring Hill. (laughs) I haven't looked it up. There's like less than 5% of the population is black there. And there were some smaller demonstrations in Spring Hill. So they did have demonstrations. Now they did not have riots, but they did have demonstrations. So um, you could say they did try that in a small town of the music video uh, of where the music video is located, and there wasn't much response. But of course, there's not gonna be much response if they're just like these goofballs, the goofballs of your town, like marching hand in hand, and it's a very cringe moment. But it's more just shows what the type of um, the type of horrible moment America was in at that time, where you know there's riots in the major cities and just like un- unprecedented levels of violence and destruction, and then in these small towns or relatively small towns like Columbia, where the music video takes place, it has over 40,000 people. I know like some of the ruralites on Twitter would say that's a major city that needs to be newt. Um, like anything, it has to be below 10,000 to be counted as like real America, which very few people live in. And Spring Hill has over 50,000 people. But those are the settings of, this, of the song or the music video. And that would be the small town. And they did have demonstrations there. Um, Probably if it had happened a year later, there would be more of a backlash Uh, because the the Black Lives Matter backlash happened over time. And even this song is, you know, if it had come out (laughs) in 2020, that would have been uh, something. Or if it had come out in 2021, you know, it is a little, even though the song's lyrics are mostly about crime rather than riots, but the music video is mostly about the riots Uh, It does feel like three years delayed because it's like, well, the BLM riots aren't really happening anymore. Of course, they could start up again at any time. But they're not really happening right now. And in some places where a small town did happen, you know, there was either, you know, the town had like a peaceful demonstration... Or there just wasn't really any as much pushback as, as there were or as they're expected. But the song is mostly about crime, which crime has been rising over the last three years. So it's more relevant. But it, they just use more riot footage than they do with criminal footage or crime footage um, of now. The music video also proposes a, an ideal small town America that I think is worth, you know, holding on to. But it's not quite... Um, how it's being delivered now, because like in small town, it's like, well, we're free of crime. Everyone, you know, is raised up with the right values and the young people, you know, are doing the right thing. And it's like, well, there's a lot of problems in small town America that, you know, the, the image being proposed, you know, of a fifties or sixties image of a small town America isn't quite there. It's like, you know, the drug epidemic, you know, there are crime problems. It's not quite the crime problems that they have. in you know, Detroit, it's more, you know, petty theft and, and, you know, Things affiliated with a drug, with a drug drug epidemic, but there still is a level of crime to it, and also there's a level of um, black influence on a lot of the young people in these small towns. And even the song has it with the, the you know there's a drug drum machine track through all, throughout most of the song, even though the normal drum comes out in the chorus. You know, there is that kind of uh, beat that they have and similar to pop music and a lot of rap music now that's like in there. It's like all throughout country music. And people complain that, like, what the hell is there, the country aspect? I mean, there's a slide guitar and, you know, there's the southern accented vocals. But, you know, otherwise it's, you know, got elements of rock and rap, a little faint influence of rap in it. But that's like most country songs uh, today. I would still say that even with. A little bit of rap influence in country music, it's still much better to listen to than actual rap. But all that aside, I think the ideal is worth upholding. And the ideal of the song is much better than what we see in these ruralite, urbanite, uh, civil war that's always happened on Twitter. Because generally what a lot of these posters do on Twitter is that they uphold rural America against the white racist bugmen. And the bu- white racist bug men are the real enemy. And it, generally it's like, oh, we'll allow illegal immigrants here and blacks and whoever. Those are all welcome in our small town. Try that in a small town. And try that in a small town is like reading Nietzsche or something. <laughs> it's like, boy, we're going to kill. We're going to get take care of you if you try that in a small town. And that becomes it because it becomes descended into just like a right wing flame war with these discussions. The Try That in a Small Town for Aldean is is strongly influenced by identity and race because Small Town represents white, uh, ideal America where they salute the flag and they're playing backyard football and they're doing cool stuff versus bad America, which is dominated by black crime. And that's a much more... Keyed message than usual debates where it's like, oh, these city slickers. We're gonna if somebody shows up in a nice pair of shoes, we we make sure he's never seen again. You know, it's like this stupid stuff, which it, it's not even how like small towns operate in America, but it's usually just something that people want to counter signal people they have beefs with and argue with on Twitter rather than that. Which there's been some weird stuff in that regard. I don't want to spend much time on it. There's this guy. Uh, I won't name him. The guy has me blocked for... He one time talked about how America needs more gypsies. And I was like, I don't think we need more gypsy immigrants. Um, and he blocked anyone who criticized him. But this guy, who in previous uh, thread that went viral, he talked about how you should be homeless... Uh, literally homeless. He used another term for being homeless, and he's like, oh, I was homeless, and I lived on other people's property. And I was like, man, I wish the property owner had uh, had, had happened upon you, and you never did that again. <laughs> I'm pro property owner, not the hobo. But this guy had a whole thread about how, like, you know, you should move to the middle of nowhere where there's like fifteen thousand dollar homes. And then the home that he was highlighting turned out to be uh, unlivable. Like you'd had to do like. Thousands and thousands of dollars of work just to make this place a livable place. So it wasn't even true And then he had all other times like talked about how you need to get a job that uh, a Three-week job that pays you twenty four hundred dollars a week and that can pay your mortgage and car insurance for an entire year It's like what? Um, I I don't think that's true. I don't think uh, (laughs) Two or three weeks of work is going to pay for your mortgage (laughs) depending, Depending on how like dirt cheap your mortgage is um, but people are all it's generally just counter signaling various people on right on the right and challenging their manhood and being like you're not real Americans you're stuck in a shake in a shake shack you know try that in a shake shack I think that would be a great song you know it's like uh, walking you know shake shacks are are very dangerous places for outsiders so you'd want to try that in a shake shack but I, I don't think the song really indulges in that. Type of rhetoric that, even though we see it a lot in the dissident right sphere, or the online rights sphere, a lot of that stuff also seeps into mainstream conservative discourse. That's like, you know, a lot of big conservative figures are always recommending people to not go to college, move to the middle of nowhere, and the middle of nowhere is great because it's free of bugmen. Rather than it's free of um, magic, it's free of bugmen, and that's really the argument that they try to make, which. Dean's song is something different. It's like small town America is great because it's free of magic, not because it's free of bugmen. And even a lot of country songs have done that before, because there's always a uh, cons- uh, regular theme in country music, which is fine. You know, it's supposed to be funny and and harmless about like the, a country boy meets a city slicker, and you know he shows him what's up, or you know this girl that he's into is marrying a dating a city slicker. Like There's a song called Bait uh, a Hook where it's like the guy can't even bait a hook. He can't even skin a buck. And it's like this guy isn't a real country boy. He's not a real man. And it's done for humorous effect. Uh, and it's, it's just the nature of country music because country music is trying to, by the, its name, it's trying to uphold an ideal of American rural life and what American rural people are because that's its primary audience. And they want to hear the you know their light way of life upheld and the ideal of it upheld they don't want like uh, you know uh, a really dark song about opioid addiction which a lot of the underground country artists you know they talk a lot about drug addiction and what's happening to these small towns but that's like very bleak and dark they don't want that from their music they want this song about you know hot girls ice cold beer on the lake uh, you know, show it up, city slickers, and that type of stuff. And it's, you know, it's it's harmless, it's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, with a popular country artist. It becomes problem, and it becomes, it becomes serious political discourse, which these songs are not serious political discourse. They're just songs, and they're just something for people to sing along with and laugh and enjoy. But Al Dean's t- song is different, because it's a political discourse, and it's something that is implicitly identitarian or you would even say implicitly it's almost explicitly identitarian about what it expresses in american life and small town life and what it represents and the left is right that there is a strong racial message behind it um I don't think it's intentional. <laughs> I don't think Aldean dean and them intended it that way. They're just like, "Oh, small-town America." And they, they for these people like they always, you know, liberals always think that there's like an intention behind this, but for most of these guys like, oh, there's no intention at all. This is just how we perceive small-town life and what real America is." If it just happens to be all white, you know, they're just like, "Uh, well, there's like a black friend we had on our football team, you know." They would just like say something like that they don't understand it's all white but to liberals they understand that it's like a very white american thing that they're up that they're celebrating and to them that's horrifying and so they understand the song's theme maybe better than al dean could understand it which i think is it's fine because i've think the left wing interpretation of it is ex- extremely keyed and is why the right should support it. But even like the conservative supporters understand it on at least an implicit or instinctual level. And that's why they like it. And it's much better than the common, you know, small town versus city life anthems that come in country songs it's very similar to uh you know hank williams jr song country boy can't survive which people have always loved and there's you know one of the final lines in the song is about how he has a friend in new york and they make fun of each other for their lifestyle and stuff and then he finds out his um, friend in new york was stabbed to death over 43 dollars and and the country boy would like to spit some beach nut in that dude's eye and shoot him with my forty-five, and. That everyone loves that line in the song, you know, growing up in the South, like people got really pumped up about that line in the song. And, you know, the song came out in 1981, you know, what would a mugger in New York City be like? And, you know, the country boy coming and exerting you know having his vengeance on that guy you know that's a very powerful theme and in there you know it's similar to what's happened in trial in a small town probably more explicitly violent and um, gritty i guess you could say interpretation of what the theme is but that's also a type of white backlash happening it's like a country boy wouldn't know what to do with that uh, with that mugger and uh, the mugger is not likely <laughs> it's unlikely to be white in this scenario our implication of it so it's very much similar to "Country Boy Can't Survive," and that's and that's like the ultimate message of the song is like you know there's apocalypse coming, there's economic hard times. Country boy can't survive, but the most important theme is that a country boy would stand up for himself against uh, and take vengeance on these muggers who are and these criminals who are destroying American cities. And very similar to the Aldine song, and I think it's worthwhile to have, even though the song you know the message may not be true. A hundred percent. But it's an ideal worth upholding. And I think it's a much better ideal of rural or small town life than what we commonly see in political discourse, which is mainly just counter-signaling white liberals or white upper middle class people, even though most of the people indulging in those theories are white upper middle class. People are former liberals who are who made a lot of money in the in the tech world. And now they're homesteading in a way to compensate and to say that they're now real men as they have a farm, but they're only able to afford that due to uh, being involved in bug men industries. I don't really like that because it's, you know, we're all in the same fight, whether you're in a small town or, you know, a big city. You know, of course, a lot of these white liberals who are in urban liberals are a problem, but, you know, there's also a lot of smart people who are conservatives who are in these areas and, you know, telling them that they all need to drop what they're doing and move to the middle of nowhere and become a plumber is not the best advice. Not that they're saying there's anything wrong with the plumbers in small town America, but that's not just not for everyone, and we shouldn't be involved in class war, or yeah, it's really it really is class war. It's you no know, class war is not our thing. You know, we're not Marxists, we're not keep Marxism but base. We're something else, and we're all in the same struggle and they all same fight together. And it's about cross class, cross regional, you know, suburbanites, urbanites, ruralites, all coming together to restore america and that's the real message to have but i think here it's like expressing what middle america and imply the historic american nation should be like and should rise up and say you know try that in a small town try that in around our values try that around us and that's a much better message than uh constantly counter signaling bug men and how they need to be plumbers and and stuff that we commonly see so that's one thing. And so I'm very pro this song. It's not the greatest song in the world. But I, the fact that a lot of people are listening to it and hearing that message, it's much better than what they could hear elsewhere on the radio. And its popularity is much better. And it's also much better than a lot of these MAGA raps that have happened, which are just, like, really stupid. They're funny content. They're incredible content. Like, I get a big laugh about the Forgiato blows latest songs you know is Marjorie Taylor Greene song it's like the fact that it exists makes me laugh but uh, on a on a on a serious level you know the songs are very embarrassing they're horrible quality they're just stupid and they're popular and people actually like them is like very uh, disconcerting you know whether it's like you know talking about Target sucks or something it's just like you know flavor of the week news story that he's talking about but here it's the song's much better, even though it's not great. It's expressing a deep message, a deep message that we that the distant right and nationalists would really support. It's a an identitarian message, a nationalist message about law and order and supporting an ideal of America and a historic American nation. And I think it's something that's the type of music that we should be producing. As I said, it's not the best music. You know, it's not my really my cup of tea. But the fact that you're going to have millions of Americans listening to it and not along and say, "Hell yeah, I agree with that message," that's powerful. That's very. That's the type of culture that we need to support and you know, admire. And it's you know, in terms of like pop country, you know, it's it's about the same. It's not like terrible stuff. It's not terrible art or culture. And compared to other right wing culture and art and people that are trying to make it, it's on a better level and it's reaching more people. Because it's going to be played on country r- radio. It's going to reach more people. And it has a stronger, much more keyed message that uh, I, we need to get out there. And the fact that you're going to have a lot of Americans agreeing with it and saying, you know, pumping their fists to it. That's a very positive sign. That's a big white pill. And the song comes out in a the midst of a culture war going on in both country music and Nashville which this song is now seen as, you know, up as a part of the dividing line, which there are all these conflicts going on with country. There's this conflict between authenticity, between getting mainstream access, the what is true country, what is not true country, how, what type of influences you're allowed to have in country, which which you're not, uh, what is, is it right to have hit pop songs? And all these are happening as country music is located in Nashville, which is a city that's dramatically changed over the last, you know, years or the last 20 years, you know, because I grew up in, you know, the Nashville suburbs and the city is completely different from when I was growing up there. It was not the bachelorette capital of the world. It was still very, very Southern when, you know, we first moved there, you know, my family first moved there over 20 years ago. And, you know there was people still like it's like the early 2000s and there's still women with like big hair you know the like 80s style hair which you know i'd grow up in north carolina but there wasn't that many people there and then like all the local news networks they had like these women with big hair i was like are the 80s still here but it dramatically changed even by the time you know i was out of high school and college and it was developing rapidly and the the development of it has just increased exponentially since then you know both the lockdowns has sent people there. There's a, you know, estimate that you know there had been a thousand people coming a month, or so, or maybe it was a day. <laughs> day that'd be a lot of people, but I think it's like a thousand people a month or a week coming there from this article I was reading on the New Yorker about the culture we're going on, country in Nashville. Anytime you visit, there's tons of construction. There's cranes everywhere. That's a good sign you can see as a city is developing. You know, if you go to Baltimore, there are no cranes there. If you go to Nashville, if you go to Austin, you go to Atlanta, tons and tons of cranes there. But it's like Nashville is just like construction city. It's just like massive developments going on there and everyone's trying to move there. And it's now a huge tourist spot, which it wasn't as big of a tourist spot when I was growing up there. And that's introduced a lot of money and it's introduced new people to the to the city. And the people go there or primarily young women go there to go for the country experience. You know, they put on their little cowboy hats. They listen to pop country. They go around the bars and that's that. And a big reason that all these women go there is it's a very white city. It's only a quarter black. Most of the areas, especially downtown, or the areas that the tourists would go, are extremely safe. It's much safer compared to any a lot of other cities. Uh, there's not even as much homeless population as you could go say in Austin. <laughs> well, DC. I don't think many tourists want to go in DC. DC's become bad even for the locals. Um, but you know, somewhere like Austin, uh, you know, there's tons of homeless there. Uh, which there's not as many homeless in Nashville. So it's like a very, it's like, you know, it's a little bubble that people can go out. It's very much of a place where white middle class can go and tune out the problems of the rest of the country and just enjoy a nice life. And that's why, you know, Nashville is it. It's It is very Democrat, but it's very moderate. You know, they did push out a lot of the progressives who are trying to make the city, you know, lighter on crime, softer on crime. And all these things would have dramatically changed the city and hurt its tourist industry. It's like, no, the Democrats there, you know, they're progressive. They're like, we're, we stand with the drag queens. Uh, We're pro LGBT, but they're very pro police, very, um, you know, we'll crack down on crime because that's, you know, they know that crime, if that got out of control in Nashville, it would, it would end the city's, you know, tourist industry. But even though Nashville tries to maintain this country image, it's very, more inauthentic now than it was years ago. You know, it's not, it's like, it's basically somebody just moved from, you know, New York. It's like a gay couple moving from New York. And they're like, hey, y'all, we're going to our mega church. And that's like Nashville, new Nashville now. It's a gay couple saying, hey, y'all, we're going to our mega church. That is the definition of new Nashville. And it's become very liberal of a city, but it's in a very conservative state. And... You know, they oppose a lot of what the this Tennessee State Legislature is doing. You know, the Tennessee State Legislature is one of the most right-wing legislatures in the country. You know, they've banned a lot of the transgender stuff. They've banned critical race theory. You know, they had that huge battle uh, back in the spring, you know, after the shooting, the shooting in Nashville... And, you know, they kicked out those three, uh, two Democratic members. They tried to kick out the, th- the white woman that didn't, that blew back in their face, but it, they don't have to suffer any political repercussions because it's a very conservative state. It's a very white state. Um, I know the really blackest areas is like Memphis. <laughs> and there's also a county near Memphis that's also a, I think it's majority black or near majority black. It's one of those random rural districts that are still throughout the South That'll be majority black Um, rural districts, which Tennessee only really has one. And it's sort of near Memphis. It's on the western side, southwestern side. Memphis is a terrible city, but that's like its own thing. But Nashville is like a complete opposite of Memphis. You know, no one goes to Memphis for tourism. It's not a safe city to walk down. It's very black. It's very black controlled. Crimes out of control compared to Nashville. It's very white uh, city. Very safe, uh, tourist attraction. And, you know, it's very, and it still likes to emphasize this country image. as part of its distinctive character. While the city has grown in prosperity, there are battles between the new Nashville and the very conservative, deep red Tennessee. And it's playing out in a lot of political matters. You know, the Nashville City Council, the Republican Party wanted to have their 2024 convention in Nashville. But the city council voted against it because they were worried about January 6th. That was literally, they thought that there's going to be an insurrection on their hands from the Republicans if they have it in Nashville. And they voted against it, even though it brought you know a lot of money to the state, to the city. They voted against it for the dumbest reasons. And the state party, state legislature is now trying to punish Nashville for that. The city is becoming very pro drag queen and will have these very public defiance of all the nat of what the state legislature is passing. And the state legislature isn't happy with that. And there's even this happening within country music. Country music is, there are not as many liberal artists as you would think, but there are more liberal artists now. And it's becoming a, they're really trying to push hard to make it more liberal, more woke. I mean, they had drag queens perform at one of the music shows. Um, It wasn't CMT. It was, I think it was A... It wasn't CMA. I think it was ACM. There was like three different music award shows that, and that was done earlier this year with one of the biggest country pop artists. She invited drag queens on the show and they were there. And they're really trying hard to push that. But the fans really don't like that stuff. And... Country music is trying to broaden its appeal in the same way that Nashville is. It's trying to reach middle class white girls primarily. And if you talk to a lot of you know adult like twenty something, thirty something women, they're really getting into country music because it's I guess it's lighter music than they would have listened to before. You know, it's easier music for their life now than like rap or pop or whatever. They're going to be listening to that. And they're trying to broaden that appeal, and part of that is making a nicer image and trying to ditch the conservative good old boy. But there's still the core audience is the rural crowd or the rural aspirants. You know, it's people in the suburbs who want to pretend they're country boys as well, who want to be into the country. And a big and an interesting thing when the and right talks about country, you know, they act like the traditional country artists. The ones who are staying true to the roots are the real conservative ones the real diehards, and that's what real ruralites are listening to versus the pop country, the bro country, the stuff that's hip hop You know, that's like the liberal crowd. But in reality, it's actually the traditional artists who are more willing to support Black Lives Matter, like Sturgill Simpson, Coulter Wall, Jason Isbell, who was criticizing, who, who lashed out at at um, Jason Aldean, you know those guys, if you're an underground true country artist or Americana artist, you know, you're not playing the pop country hits. You're more likely to be liberal than the bro country artists, the pop country artists. The most of the pop country artists that are still within the country music fold, you know, you're Jason Aldean, those types, though they are going to be far more likely to be conservative. And, yeah, there's, like, the funniest example is that there was this video. I even tweeted out this video of how terrible it was. There was this female hip-hop artist, and she was, like, in a mud field or something, and she's doing this music video, and I was like, God, this is awful. And then people found out that she's a lesbian. It's like, country music has fallen. It turns out she's a huge Trump supporter. And it's, like, a lot of the hip-hop artists are very conservative. It's one of the biggest ones now is Jelly Roll, who is just, like, tatted up. Fat guy, who's like, the fact that he's like huge is, is something else. But I guarantee you that guy is more likely to be a Trump supporter than any of the underground country artists who are writing about opioid addiction. Like those guys, like are just like the true blue country artists that people on right wing Twitter want to uh, establish and admire. He's more likely to be conservative because that's actually the music enjoyed by ruralites. It's you know they like the traditional country tunes. You know they like Hank Williams you know senior and junior they like merle haggard they like that stuff they like of course they like johnny cash but the stuff that they're listening to on the radio they like the stuff that's being played on the radio they like fancy like applebees they like this terrible shit and they're that's like the trump supporter music the people that are going to actively seek out like the authentic country music being made today are more likely to be these libtard hipsters and yeah, you know, of course, the, it's not saying that it's like exclusively for them. But I think it's a misinterpretation that some people on right wing Twitter will have that like all the real blue, you know, true blue uh, conservative ruralites are just listening to Coulter Wall. It's like no, they're listening to Morgan Wallen. Morgan Wallen is like now like the theme music of right wing America. Like right, conservative women, young conservative women love. Morgan Wallen. I think Morgan Wallen sucks. I'm going to be honest. I, I think Morgan Wallen's terrible. But like the like the, it's the fact that like Daily Wire people love Morgan Wallen. But that's like the stuff they're listening to. And so our side listens to lower musical quality. I think that is like something that people uh, don't want to admit is that our side actually has uh, maybe worse cultural taste than some of the, the left uh, in that regard and that most of the artists that we're going to like if you're you know, want to get into the authentic stuff or the better stuff or the, you know, better music, you know, it's more likely to be made by liberals, at least when it comes to country music, especially with, I mean, that's always been the case with Roots Music and Americana. It's like everyone has always been involved in that is very liberal. And they like to be liberal as a way of counter signaling the Nashville country establishment because they always like, oh, the Nashville country establishment is racist and white supremacist and, and bigoted and we're open and we love LGBT people. And it's like all these, um, you know, more traditional country artists are showing their support for drag queens. Not all of them, but a lot. It's more likely that support is supposed to come from that field. It's like the Dixie Chicks. The Dixie Chicks, compared to a lot of their competitors in the '90s and late '90s and early 2000s, you know, they had a more authentic country sound. Yet they were more liberal than Toby Keith, which had, you know, he's his music was more influenced by rock, like classic rock. So that's the culture we're going on. I, You know, as someone who grew up with country music, I mean, that's the music my you know, parents listened to. That's the music I was surrounded by in Nashville, you know, Music City. Um, you know, it's fine. It's background music. I like it. It's fine, but it's not the music I want to listen to in my personal time. It doesn't really have that uh, deep emotional resonance, and it's not the type of music that's... Um, very complicated and also the type of authentic country music is much more centered on the lyrics and the singing than the type of music i like i like the music to be more centered on the music and the singing just uh, adds to it are are the vocalizations add to it i don't know if black metal is quite the singing black metal death but i don't know if that would be called uh singing but uh that'd be called vocalizations um and same with like even classical music i like the yeah, you know, the music side, even when I'm listening to opera, you know, the, the, the singing is great and adds to it, but it's mainly the music itself that I'm more into, which it's not, that's really not the case for country, but it's like great social music. I like, um, you know, I like all the old classics and stuff. I don't really like the new country stuff, even though, but I have to admit that, you know, if you want to wonder what Trump supporters, the ordinary Trump supporters are listening to, they're listening to pop country, um, you know, that's not the libtard stuff. The libtards are more to be, even though they're trying to influence more of the libtard stuff, even in that, like Brad Paisley and, you know, some of the female country, Miranda Lambert is definitely a huge example of that. You know, they're trying to do that, but that's like the audience doesn't like that. It's still, the audience is still predominantly white, rural, or at least the core audience is rural, rural and suburban. It's, you know, middle and working class, and you know it's not something that really minorities are picking up on. You know, it's not music that Hispanics are really getting into either. I mean, blacks, of course, aren't going to listen to it, and Hispanics, the new Hispanic and immigrant populations, don't get into it. The only immigrants who get who listen to it are like Indian conservatives who want to pretend they're Americans, like Sarab Sharma. You know, I'm putting on my my country boot. I'm putting on my boots and going to listen to some Hank Williams. You know, that's a, it's like a conservative aspirant. Uh, immigrants as a part of their assimilation process is that they get into really into country music so it is like part of white culture um you know it's not really the stuff i really enjoy listening to but i'm not anti it and as part of the careerhead pledge you know if you're gonna put down the rap and listen to country you know you're gonna get my thumbs up for doing that uh, no matter what country it is even though i'm gonna roll my eyes at some of the uh, i'm not a big fan of the pop country that's coming out you know i still admit that it's much better for our side to be listening to that than to rap but the final thing i need to add add is like the industry itself more than the artists are is trying to become more liberal too because it's the fact is like country music uh, television cmt pulled it off the air just because of liberals criticizing it over "It's it's pro lynching and they pulled it off the air and it's like jason aldean is one of the top 10 country artists like most popular country artists not best but like most popular country artists He's in the top 10 and like in terms of his touring and stuff of like who's going to draw the most crowds, it's going to be Al, Al Dean's going to be in that top 10. He's one of the biggest country artists. This is not just some like over the hill, you know, artist, you know, he's, you know, one hit wonder 30 years ago. This is like one of the top artists. He, he was more popular in the early 2010s than probably today. You know, Luke Combs and Morgan Wallen have replaced him at the top, but he's still there. He's still a big name. He's still one of the big guys in the industry, and he still has hits like this new song. Um, the fact that the country music industry is trying to create that image, but it's also part. It's the same with NASCAR. They're both, you know, you know, like NASCAR. It's a it's an entertainment primarily associated with white rural conservatives, and they want to broaden that outside of that demographic. And like with NASCAR, it's not really working. And also NASCAR drivers are pretty much, except for Bubba Wallace, are all still really conservative, love Trump. And same with a lot of the big country artists is that a lot of these guys are all very conservative and love Trump. But the industry itself is trying to push them into a to a more uh, liberal direction, but, knowing, but without alienating their audience. I think unlike NASCAR, country industry is still more leery of alienating their audience than... Um, than it, than it is in Nashville. So I think it is a part of a battle. I think it's going to be interesting that it's a... a, a one of the fronts in the culture war is now over country music. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I think it, the popularity of the song is a good good sign. And it would be very cool if there became more conservative protest songs from country artists. And I think they're a lot better than the MAGA raps and the... Uh, Assorted other music that is created by very conservative artists that their, their whole um, audience is still very political consumers, it's better to get these artists who have, you know, their fan base is just normal people or regular country artists or country listeners, and to get their message out there and their songs out there, political messages. And, and country music has always done this, you know, Okie from Skokie. By Merle Haggard was a protest against the hippies and the changes going on in the 60s. It was like a reactionary song. Um, <laughs> I would And Country Boy Can Survive, even though I don't think it had quite the reactionary theme, uh, or at least in the setting that it was released in. You know, over time it has that. And now Jason Aldean joins that, even though Okie from Muskokie and Country Boy Can Survive are much better than it. The message of it is very solid and strong and for that alone, people should support it and be have a white pill over the song's popularity and the fact it's being released by one of the biggest country artists. Now moving along to campaign update, because we're always going to give one of campaign updates of what's happening. And most of it's going to be about Ron DeSantis, and I can already hear the screams of all the DeSantoids who still listen to this podcast I thought, no, oh, he's so great, he's awesome. That video that they released is first off, it was not done by the Desantis campaign. Second off, it's incredibly based. Uh, that's the Desantoids the of that. But uh, there's the only evidence. I mean, the only things that have happened uh, since this time has been Trump's going to get indicted over. January 6th and Stop the Steal, and there's likely three charges to emanate for that. Actually, the DeSantis stuff, I'm going to mainly just focus on the Trump indictment and its things and the outcome of this. I talked about this a lot last week, but I'll just give an update on that. And then there's like two quick DeSantis quips I need to to address. But on the Trump indictment that's looming, it probably is going to drop probably by the end of this month. I mean, it's very—it's unclear what happens with the federal uh, prosecutors and what they are going to do, but it's going to drop very soon. And there's three possible charges that could be, or rather that Trump can be indicted on. Two of the charges have been used against J6 people. It is. One is obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the government. I don't know what the conspiracy to defraud the government means or, or how I know what it means, but I mean, I don't know how that relates to what Trump was doing. And then the third is interesting is that they haven't used this in J six, but they have used this against Ricky Vaughn. And this is coming from the New York times that got a copy of what the letter to Mr. Trump was saying. And the New York times says the third criminal law cited in the letter was a surprise section 241 of title 18 of the United States code, which makes it a crime for people to conspire to injure oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the constitutions or laws of the United States. And this is done to go after the Klan and others. And it was done against Ricky Vaughn because they said that he had used, uh, you know, it threatened and harmed people from exercising their right to vote by through a meme saying the text to vote. And Ricky Vaughn was convicted of that. And clearly, the Ricky Vaughn case is influencing Jack Smith on what to charge Trump with. Now, this does not mean that he will be charged with all three. He—it's unclear which three he will be charged with. It's probably—I would say—probably all three he's going to be charged with. But the third is showing the effect of the Ricky Vaughn case. Is that the Ricky Vaughn case showed that, like, well, we found this obscure rule that really we were only using against the Klan during Reconstruction, and now we're going to use against right-wingers who just do things in elections that we don't agree with. As what's happening in the Michigan case, Out in um, Michigan, which they're now charging these 16 electors, alternative electors, with a whole bevy of fraud charges or election fraud charges just for standing as alternative electors, which this could lead them to over 50 years in jail if they're convicted of all these charges that they're hit with you know, it's just showing that they're trying what they're trying to do here. And it's, it's pretty crazy what they're going to do, but they, they feel that they're empowered to do this. They can do whatever they want and there's no impediment to these measures. And they are now seeing the precedent set by Ricky Vaughn is the fact that he was convicted. There's a good chance it may be overturned on appeal, but now they're wanting to apply that rule elsewhere or similar ideas to just conservatives. Um, not agreeing with the elections and the results. So I predicted in past episodes that he was gonna get charged with it In the letter that Smith sent to Trump and it was revealed on Tuesday, I believe it was Tuesday, just further shows that he is going to get indicted. Now what's gonna happen with his indictment? I guess it's to go over what are the chances with Trump here. There's also last week as a new development is that the Eileen Cannon, the judge in the documents case set a, a date for May 20th next year to oversee that case. And now there's a chance he could push that back again because if he is well on his way to securing the nomination, he can be like, look, I'm, I'm about to be running for president against the Democrat. I don't, I, this needs to be pushed back until after the election. There's a chance that Eileen Cannon may push it back again until after the election. And his best bet for Trump in both these cases is to get them pushed back until after the election. I've talked to some lawyer friends, and some of them believe that there's a chance that a judge will throw out the, the charges relating to Stop the Steal on January 6th because they could say that it's standing on shaky legal ground. It is unprecedented what they're doing, you know, and this is to a president. And I've even said this before. A lot of this, there's not a real—what is the crime committed? You know, they're just discussing ideas. They're discussing ideas through the legal and political process. You know, they're suing over votes. They're, you know, asking, you know, lawmakers if they can just vote in a different way. That's a part of the normal political process. Now it could say that this is unseemly of some sort, or maybe it's not the right thing to do. It's not illegal to do a lot of these things. And now they're trying to claim it's illegal to challenge the election, which we've had a lot of election challenges throughout American history. You know, whether it's, you know, from... local level, to congressional, to Senate elections, to even some presidential elections. We've always had election challenges. Now they're trying, and we had election challenges in 2016, where there were efforts by Democrats to overturn the Electoral College and give the presidency to Hillary Clinton. Wasn't, you know, that didn't really get off the ground, but there were talks about it. And the same way that there were talks in 2020 about doing similar ways. Nobody was charged with any crimes In 2016, but now in 2020 or over the 2020 election, uh, not only Trump, but the 16 electors in Michigan and like people that could be surrounding the Trump campaign. I guarantee you that like Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman and some others are going to get arrested as well or charged with some type of crime relating to uh, Stop the Steal January 6th. And it's a way of just like criminalizing normal political process. But if you challenge the elections that disagree with the system, the system is going to put you in jail. And this is all about salting the earth of the MAGA earth is ensuring that MAGA can never rise again. Is that they really want to crush anything associated with Trumpism. And in Michigan, the Michigan thing is probably really, really horrible. It's one of the worst. You know, the Ricky Vaughn thing was really bad, but this might even be worse. It's on the same level, at least, because, I mean, they arrested him over memes. Here, they're arresting people over just being alternative electors, and all these people are in their, like, 60s. They're all boomers. The honest person's, like, 56, and they're threatening them with years and years in jail, for the crime of signing up to be alternative electors in and they weren't even used they weren't even used so it's like what what fraud was committed here and it's really just the state power flexing its muscles i think in michigan you know they would like to do that in other states but they're not going to do it in other states because i don't think they have quite the political power that they do in michigan michigan has gone from a state that had a republican governor and a republican legislature to a state with a democratic governor and a democratic legislature and it's much more blue heavy state than pennsylvania arizona or wisconsin and democrats won handily in 2022 so they feel that there's going to be no real pushback from this and they really want to you know send a clear message to the republican party that they're the weaker set and they're going to destroy them and they really want to hammer them I think those charges are just so flimsy that any judge, it might even be a state judge, throws this shit out. They have to be, the attorney general has to be so confident that they're going to get this in front of a libtar judge who won't throw this out, that they'll just be convicted. I don't even, even if it goes to trial, I'm very, I'm very positive that a jury would not convict, but maybe they hosted a Detroit or somewhere and or Ann Arbor, somewhere where it's like a very liberal population, you know, one of the college towns. I don't, I don't know particularly where they would hold it for state court. And maybe they'll just they'll vote to as like Trump bad, democracy good. We got to save democracy by sending these old people to jail for years for a non-crime. But I think if any, if that, you know, they appealed it to the federal court, you know, even maybe the Michigan Supreme Court. Maybe there's more conservatives on there. The case would just get thrown out. It's just so flimsy and so ridiculous. But the fact that they're willing to do this, that this is not just some, you know, idiotic DA on a power trip, you know, local DA. This is the state attorney general. Somebody elected to office, was reelected again. And she's just like, nope, I'm going to put these people in jail. I'm going to send, you know, a fuck you message to the Republican Party. And we're in power and we're using state power to do what we please. And it's like these poor old people that are there, and even even if they're found innocent or their trial or their charges are completely thrown out, you know they're going to have to spend a lot on legal fees, and they're going to have like the the trauma and the difficulty of surrounding this trial and the anxiety and stress of it. And you know this it it it's about it's really is about us sending a message that they're that they are not going to do this again. If you try this shit again, we're going to throw you in jail, even though it's perfectly legal what you did. And The if they somehow get convicted and a juror and a federal judge upholds the conviction, that is one of the biggest black pill moments for America. That's like (laughs) you might want to flee the country (laughs) if that happens. But I am optimistic that that's not going to happen. Uh, You know, even if a jury convicts, I'm I'm optimistic that a very I would say more than 50 percent chance that a federal judge or someone higher up the echelon will throw these charges out. And it may even they may even be thrown out before they even get a trial. So there's uh, there's some white, but the fact that they're charging them is just very dark and we're unprecedented. We're heading into uncharted territory here with what Democrats want to use. You know, Republicans and conservatives like keep talking about state power and what they can use for. The thing is, is Democrats due to the moral authority they have in this country and the support they would have from these important institutions. You know, whether it's universities or media or anything, they're able to get away with using state power that Republicans could never even dream of. Imagine like DeSantis are in you know, Tennessee would be a good example. Imagine they put these black lawmakers on trial for disrupting the proceedings. You know, that would like Tennessee, like Biden would send like the 100 first airborne to replace the state government if that happened. You know, they would they would they would topple the state government. They could not survive. But here they're doing something extremely outrageous, something that would even be worse than Tennessee putting those two guys on trial. And they feel they can get away with it. And they know that liberal judges will support them because of the democracy brain, the MSNBC brainwashing that's happened to libtards. So they'll just go along with it. It does show Democrats are more willing to go the extra mile or go a mile not even imagine against us. But I am I the white pill our optimism. I have to say is that I don't think the charges are going to hold up, and I don't think any of these uh, boomers will face a day in jail if they do. And. Uh, uh, that's extremely blackpilling that's more blackpilling than Ricky Vaughn getting convicted in my opinion even though Ricky Vaughn's case is horrible and terrible and is like unprecedented like this is even an escalation to that but it's all set off by the Ricky Vaughn and other cases and what they think they can get away with and then with Trump Trump would be me more meaningful but I think it's it's also outrageous, but the the elector stuff is even is even more outrageous than Trump. But Trump is, is more important and more meaningful on this country. Now his chances uh, of getting his uh, if he ever got convicted of thrown out, um, <laughs> I'm not confident of, but I think his best chance, and it's a very good chance, is that he just delays these till past 2024, and he wins the election, and then his Department of Justice th- just throws out the investigations. I think that's his best hope um, there is a potential that as I said a federal judge could throw out the the stuff over j six and stop the seal. I'm not that confident, but there is a chance more confident that the um, the both judges both federal judges overhearing both cases will delay the cases past twenty twenty four and uh you know. The election will be held, and Trump, you know, if the illegal questions aside, you know, if they're pushed back, you know, then they may not figure into the presidential race. I mean, it's gonna be a very bizarre presidential race. And if Trump's against Biden, Biden's on like, Biden is really not doing well. Like, Biden is getting worse by the week. I mean, he like fell asleep meeting the Israeli president or the Israeli dignitary who was there, and you know, he just fell asleep. And he's just like being muttering. And it's like, this is the president of the United States. What the hell? Like all these public events have these disasters that would have defined another president uh, or earlier president. But it's just now the new normal. It's like why he can't take questions. He is like in severe cognitive decline. And this is the guy who's our president. And he's not going to be able to campaign. He was already barely able to campaign in 2020. And thankfully, COVID saved him from having to campaign like a normal presidential candidate. But he's not going to be even be able to do that type of stuff, and like putting him out in public is just going to show about how in bad condition this is. So I think Trump, you know, even with his legal problems, I think just by fact is like showing he's more alert and alive than the president of the United States. And like I said, there's you know the economy could start to take a tumble, the immigration crisis could become more noticeable. I mean Biden administration's trying to hide it. There's a lot of things that could happen that could be in Trump's favor. He just needs to get the legal questions postponed. <laughs> the only thing he can do is postpone them. And then he gets in the White House and then he can say, oh, you know, <laughs> President, no longer have to worry about that. That's like the best chance. And now if uh, the trials are not pushed back, um, he's going to be convicted of at least one. <laughs> uh, I would I would bet. I mean, I'm... Uh, um, not certain. I'm not guaranteeing it. He would probably get convicted of either or. There's a, there's a chance that he could have a hung jury in the documents trial. And there's a chance that there the uh, stop-the-steal stuff could be thrown out. I, I think there's a greater chance of a hung jury in the documents trial than that a judge would throw out the stop-the-steal stuff. But once again, there's still chances with it. I do think his best hope is just to postpone this and to win the primary and then to run. But if he doesn't, uh, then the Republican Party is terminal. Let's say that the trial happens for May uh, over the documents. He's convicted. That's before the convention. What happens then? <laughs> uh, it becomes a very chaotic situation. Does Trump just hand it off to a Republican who promises a pardon? Does he continue to run? Potentially from a jail cell, it's like, what happens then? I don't, I don't, I don't even know what to speculate. What would happen? Because I don't, I honestly don't know what. My, I'm leaning towards the fact that Trump, if he is convicted, there's gonna be an oh shit moment, and then at the convention, he'll just endorse whoever they say. We'll, we'll, we'll have this guy as the nominee, if you, any promises a pardon, and he'll say sure, and. Uh, Trump will still be a major campaign issue, like, you know, if he's convicted. If he was supposed to be the nominee and now he's not, he that's going to happen. The thing is, like, Trump is, is just, like, going along to uh, a primary victory. The only hope they have, all the other candidates have, is now that the J-6 trial is held before the primaries. I mean, there's a chance it could be held in, you know, there's a chance it could be held before Iowa. And if he's convicted, then... um I don't know how that would have an impact on the primary voters. I think it would make them want to support Trump more, but Trump may be like, um, I might not be able to run for president from a jail cell. So Trump's calculus may change and he may drop out and endorse someone else. I don't know. This is, uh, it's hard to say what will happen, but uh, that's their only hope. And you can even see that with like DeSantis's flagging campaign. Now I get finally to my favorite subject, DeSantis. DeSantis is continuing to have bad weeks. Uh, he in polling, Vivek is starting to catch up to him in some polling and pretty much the whole DeSantis his team is now talking about how every poll is fake and bought by Trump campaign or bought by somebody else. And you can't trust the polls, except for the polls showing that except for like the one or two polls showing that Biden would beat Trump, even though there are polls showing that Trump would beat Biden and it's, or especially Trump would beat Biden in key battleground states. Those are fake polls. The only polls that are real are the ones that show that Biden will beat Trump. That's pretty much what the Desantis team now is—that all polls are fake except for the ones that show Biden beating Trump. Uh, all other polls are just bought by the Trump campaign. And Desantis is having—you know—he's like talked about how he's having a reboot, and there's no reboot. It's like the same shit. It's actually getting even—it's even getting more parody levels. You know, he went on Jesse Waters this week. He's like, "Well, you know, Jesse." I'm going to sue Bud Light because Bud Light defrauded its investors. You know, we had a pension fund and the fact they used this transgender person, it's why we they, defra- they hurt the pensions. So we're going to sue them on behalf of the pensioners. And it's just so stupid to focus on Bud Light. It's not going to do them any favors in the primary because they want you to talk about real issues. Like Bud Light is now just a convenient... Scapegoat for all our problems because it's the only thing they can win on, and it's the it's the only thing the Republicans have been winning on, and so they just keep beating a dead horse. Like they've already sent the message to Bud Light. The reason why they keep fixating on Bud Light is because it's the only thing that has effect, and it's just a way of just throwing slop red meat to the audience, and they think this will work. But it's like his like promise to sue, like people just rolled their eyes at it because it's like stupid. It's even it's as dumb as as Ted Cruz and some other Republican senators sending a letter and suggesting they're gonna have a hearing on Bud Light. Over what? And they're like, uh, they're, uh, by using Dylan Mulvaney, they're appealing to kids and this is alcohol. Like just having a hearing, a congressional hearing on Bud Light would be one of the lowest moments in democracy, American democracy and American governments. And the threatening to sue Bud Light is just like, a, he's like the campaign's like, oh, here's some more red meat we thought about. And it's stupid. It's all this frivolous, extremely online content that DeSantis keeps running with. He's still having these problems that he's gonna, you know, he's gonna face major issues at the debate um, next month. And his other problems continued with once again his campaign made likely made in-house, another meme video, you know, a Panther Den style video directed towards online right which once again they didn't learn their lesson from the last one they did on the uh, anti-gay one which everyone criticized and it didn't win over anyone I mean it's like I wasn't offended by it It was just corny and lame and forced and it didn't win and it's all and normal boomers are just not going to understand what this the ad is you know it's just directed towards the online right which the online right hates these videos because they know that's being made by campaign consultants and they're it's inauthentic and lame. They made an even more ridiculous one where you know it's once again anti-Trump and it's like a doomer wojack. And then in his in his door comes DeSantis, which the the scene is just so stupid. You know it's done by a campaign consultant by just shoving in DeSantis and the guy becomes white pilled and then it's like goes through and it's like supposed to be based like you know. Panther Dan style video that just like shows him lowering taxes and creating more business opportunities. And it's like, wow, this is epic. And then it has American soldiers marching, not German soldiers, marching with, uh, with a Sonnenrad spinning that eventually has DeSantis' face in the middle of the Sonnenrad. And you're like, what <laughs> the fuck is this? You know, they're really fulfilling my joke that I said that they'd eventually hire Moon Man to do pro DeSantis raps. And this is pretty much close to my jokes. Like you can't parody DeSantis anymore because he is the parody of himself. Like if they are like suggesting what a reboot would do, he would suggest, you would suggest suing Bud Light. He does it. You know, with suggesting these inauthentic meme videos, we're going to put DeSantis that's done likely in-house because it was revealed they try to deny that that anti-gay one was not done in-house and then it turned out it was done in-house and it's likely that this was done in-house too because none of these memes are wanting to do this for free. They're wanting to get paid and that they workshop this video. And for some reason, none of them realized that the spinning uh, wheel Sun and Rad is, uh, means something else. It's just not a meme symbol. And they went along with it. They at least knew that the using German soldiers marching was not, was not good optics, that it's better to use American soldiers and then you just have like DeSantis there. And it's just so ridiculous that this is like a product of the campaign. But once again, like the whole campaign is just fixated on extremely online issues. And his whole and it all comes down to his personality. He is not winning over voters. Once more people get to know DeSantis, they're like, Well, we like what he did in Florida, but he really doesn't connect with us. He doesn't inspire us. And we're still loyal to Trump. And the persecutions against Trump is helping solidify his support among the among Republican voters, because they feel that this is a, not just an attack on Trump, this is an attack on all of them. And they feel they have to rally to Trump's cause to there. And DeSantis is having problems articulating that too. He's like, you know, you know, he attacked Trump for not doing enough on January 6th. He's like, I would have told those protesters to and stronger to stop. And then his campaign had to apologize for that and walk it back, which just shows the complicated way of going about Republican politics is like Vivek is running the primary campaign you would that DeSantis should be running, but he's not. And he's eventually gonna continue to drop in the polls. Like there's not gonna be a reversal at all because Voters are turning to someone, are turning to other candidates, and donors are turning to other candidates too. And people are like, well, like DeSantis's personality will carry him. It's like DeSantis has no personality; he's entirely dependent on conservative media to make him a star. And eventually, conservative media is going to tire of being his rapid response team and just move on to other people. And that's it. I mean, DeSantis is destroying his political career. I'm pretty confident that DeSantis will never would not be the nominee, even if Trump drops out. It'll be. The people that I still think it's most likely to be is Tim Scott and Vivek, maybe Youngkin, depending on how Youngkin, what's Youngkin's pitch. If Youngkin's offering a pardon to Trump, if Youngkin is not doing anything pro Trump, then he's just another one of these, you know, also Rands who's, you know, thinks it's their time to shine. But if he comes in and offers a pardon to Trump, I would actually say his chances increase. But really, right now, the two most likely, if it's not Trump, are Tim Scott and Vivek. I'm not entirely ruling out DeSantis because, you know, you don't know what would happen. You know, there's so many things that could happen if, like, say he gets Trump gets convicted in January and then DeSantis does a reversal and says, I'll, I'll grant you a pardon. I'll grant you a pardon. And maybe like and he's still maybe running in second at that time. And due to being it's just him and Vivek who are offering a pardon And then Trump may drop out and not endorse anyone and maybe DeSantis gets some like Trump backing uh, or Trump world backing and maybe that's enough to carry him. I don't I don't really think that's likely, but it's possible. But he's running a terrible campaign and it's like they're going to have to have another reboot and it's going to be the same shit. It's like focusing on extremely online issues Doing these stupid ads that boomers aren't going to understand, are going to be confused by, which is the same with the new ad that they did, or video they did, and that's just going to be the uh, case for the campaign. So, as I've always said, Trump has the nomination locked up as long as he's in the race. As long as he's in the race, he's going to win the primary, but he may not be in the race uh, based on what happens with with the January 6th trial and when it's held, so... That's the idea to keep on. But if it's if the January 6th trial date is after or after most of the primaries, if it's maybe June or July, he's the nominee. And people just need to accept that. So once again, I thought this would be a shorter podcast, but it's not. So but we're going on to the Elite questions. As a reminder, you two can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics. If you sign up for the Elite option at Highly Respected's Substack, and that's at Highly Respected. and Make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. The first question comes from Tim and Tim wants to know my thoughts on Barbie and Oppenheimer. And if I saw either movie last weekend, I actually saw neither movie last weekend. I probably will see Oppenheimer just to do an IQ supplement on it. I don't know when, but I'm hearing a lot of different takes on Oppenheimer. Some people are saying it's great. A lot of people are saying it sucks. I'm beginning to realize that probably the the side that's saying it sucks has or is mediocre has more of a point because instead of about building the bomb, it's mostly a court drama and it's McCarthy. It's like McCarthyism was so bad, they were doing a witch hunt against communism. And Oppenheimer, who was a communist sympathizer, who knew that all these people he was working with were communists and were handing over information and leaking stuff to the soviets you know he kept them on and defended them and yeah he the movie doesn't glosses over that the movie also glosses also it supports like oppenheimer's neurosis over the bomb and how he's like oh no i can't believe i did this this is so bad no i couldn't have made the nuclear bomb and then he you know he whined to truman and truman threw him out and said never let that idiot back into my office again and Oppenheimer would have not had these moral qualms if we had dropped the bombs on Hamburg or you know, Frankfurt. Then if we, but due to the fact that we dropped it on Japan, he only had moral qualms. It's like we were building up the bombs to drop on Germany. He would have had no problems if, it, if we had used them against Germany. It was just the fact that we used Japanese that he found a moral conscience over that. So I think it's dumb. Uh, I'm actually pro-dropping the bombs. But that's another subject. Uh, actually, I'll just go briefly into there because we've already had it, is it. There's always the argument that we could have just said, you can keep the empire, you can keep the emperor and everything else. But the way the war was going, we were going to have to like occupy Japan. And the only way to get Japan to agree to that in any case was to drop the bombs or to prevent the Soviets from taking. I think there was also fears that if we didn't drop Drop the bomb quick enough that the Soviets may evade and would make Japan communist. And so we were trying to get them to surrender quickly and surrender quickly to us. And the only way to have done that was to drop the bombs. Because Japan wasn't going to, I mean, the Soviet Union wasn't going to offer, like, you know, to allow them to keep their system either. They were going to want to go in and take over the country. And uh, Japan was unlikely to just give up all its gains and. Allow American reconstruction of the government to occur. So, in the context, we saved half a million lives, American lives, by dropping the bombs. And we'd already done massive bombardments of German and Japanese cities. Which I'm not, I'm not as um, a pro or supportive of that. I think there is a lot of problems with that. But compared to like what else we did in the war, or all these type of wartime atrocities, I don't know why dropping the A bomb was somehow worse or something that we need to uh, be regretful of. And it was also about showing American power to the Soviet Union as well. So but we sa- we saved half a million lives by doing it. It's unclear if we had just had the surrender terms is like everything is the same, but you get to keep the emperor, whether they would have agreed to that or they would have said, uh, no, we want you to invade. <laughs> just bring on the invasion instead. It's unclear if they would have even accepted those terms. So in that context of saving half a million American lives, most of those guys whites, um, I'm supportive of dropping the A-bomb. And in light of the other atrocities and crimes that happened in the war, like how is this somehow worse? That'll probably be a controversial take, but it is what it is. Uh, that's my last. That's another reason why I don't like Oppenheimer as a figure. Uh, but on the Barbie movie, I'm not going to see the Barbie movie. It's like a musical, like it's a movie made for women. It's like I'm not gonna, I don't care whether it's woke or not. I'm like not, it, It's like a stupid movie that I'm just not going to see. Uh, it's not appealing to me. I think there's like a irony factor in it, but like I'm seeing like these r- ridiculous musical numbers. I hate musicals. I hate musicals, and it's done like this. And it's like, why would I ever see this movie in a million years? So, I'm not seeing the Barbie movie, uh, regardless of whether it's woke or not. And everyone's arguing over that. I don't care whether it's woke or not. I am not seeing the stupid movie. Um, I, I don't want to see, you know, Ken and Barbie sing along to stupid numbers. I, you know, I'm a huge opera fan, but I absolutely hate musicals. I think, you know, operas are serious. There's a, and there's not this. Um, uh, you know, theater kid. Well, there's a different kind of theater kid energy. Operas are serious and, and touch like real human emotions and are like, have a lot of depth to them. Musicals are just, you know, gay theater. It's really bad. I have always hated musicals and it's like, oh, you know, um, I love West Side Story. Love the singing. It's like, it's terrible. Musicals really need to be banned. I right? So For that alone, the musical numbers and just the themes, I'm I'm not going to see Barbie. But I probably will see Oppenheimer. I will have maybe a more detailed IQ supplement on that. So that's my answers to those questions. And if I see Oppenheimer, I'll probably go more into whether dropping the A-bomb was right and all the arguments pro and against that. So the second question comes from Mystery, and he asks... Hey Scott, thanks for the is asking about the last question I asked follow up. I can't find much online about the debate around the 1990 Immigration Act that really opened the third world floodgates. It looks like there wasn't much of one. True. Do you have any insight into the motivations and the interests involved? Are you aware of any resistance to the bill? Was the Reaganite right simply addicted to cheap labor by the point? Yeah, it was just about increase. It was all economics, and it was about like increasing the numbers. Like it's it's remarkable how little information there is about it. You know, I've read. Over the last year, I read two books about immigration policy historically, and both of them talked more about 1986 IRCA, which is um, the amnesty bill, and they barely addressed the 1990 Immigration Act. There was no resistance towards it at all. It's similar to the 1991 Civil Rights Act, which greatly expanded that terrible piece of legislation, There was hardly any resistance to that at all. Richard Hanani has written a lot about the 1981 Civil Rights Act. And he's also talked about how the Republican Party is better because they're now, if they tried to do that again, the Republican Party would oppose. No, there was no real resistance towards it. I think they were just, it was business motivations. It's like, we need more immigrants, nation of immigrants, Cold War is winding down. Let's, uh, Let's make America stronger. And that it, there's not a lot of information about it. I've been trying to find a lot more information about it in the debates around it. Uh, but uh, based on what I'm finding or the lack of finding, it appears there was no debates around. it. There was a lot of debates around the '86 amnesty. Uh, and, and one funny thing about the '86 amnesty was that a lot of the immigration restrictionist groups supported it because they thought it would actually end illegal immigration and would make and would add some immigration restrictions and... Uh, none of that happened. They were all very big on e-verify and other things, and none of that actually turned out to be the case. It was also it was seen in some light that it was in a, a restrictive immigration, but it turned out to be not so much the case. So yeah, there was very little resistance towards it. Same thing, reason pro economy, America's a nation of immigrants, etc. It really just proves how terrible George H. W. Bush was the president. And really where America just like quietly became uh, the G.A.E. in that time with the Cold War ending, we became, you know, the Unipo- we became the sole world power and we expanded civil rights. We expanded immigration and we uh, set the set the foundations for the current state of the country at that time under George H.W. Bush. And so, yes, yeah, a semi related question about uh, George H.W. Bush. Were how influential were the neocons on that administration? They were involved in it because uh, Wolfowitz and uh, Cheney were in the administration. Uh, Wolfowitz and Cheney were running the uh, defense department at that time, so yeah, there were uh, they were there, and that's also when Wolfowitz articulated this like. The real policy vision of the globalist American empire, he had this whole policy paper. It's like, we're going to spread democracy everywhere. It's our right to. We're going to spread all these rights, and we're going to Americanize the whole world. And people were like, uh, this is all insane. But in terms of, you know, at that time, the Cold War still dictated foreign policy. There were beginnings of it because, you know, Bush sent troops to Somalia, which was about how we're going to be the world's policemen. And this was heavily supported by the neocons. And a lot of the neocons in the administration were pissed off that he didn't go in and take out Saddam, which they were competing against Britt Scowcroft, who was the national security advisor. And Scowcroft was more of a realist. And he, Obama, and all those people really liked Scowcroft, not for cringe reasons, but for good reasons, because they saw that Scowcroft opposed the Iraq war and said this is not in America's interest. He was also opposed going into Iraq to take out of Saddam after kicking them out of Kuwait, said that it's like going to expand the goals. We don't know really what's going to happen. We need to be more realistic here about the uh, limits. So H.W. Bush, you know, they were there. They were articulating their policy, but they were sidelined in favor of a more realistic foreign policy. I don't say that H.W. Bush's foreign policy was that bad, but it's also he had like the New World Order uh, speech, you know, we sent in troops to Somalia and we felt like the America was unchallenged. You know, Soviet Union was over. And throughout the administration, communism was dying out. You know, in 89, all these governments in, in Eastern Europe fell. And then Soviet Union was continuing to weaken and lose its power and grip over its own country or its own domains. And, you know, it's now like America's in the driver's seat. No one can challenge us. And so a lot of that began in, under Bush. But due to Scowcroft's influence and others, you know, they were not really in control there. And there was different concerns there than there are, you know, even 10 years later. But you can really tell if you want to illustrate their, you know, their lack of total control is what happened in Kuwait is that it was just a limited war. We keep the Iraqis out, we place sanctions on them, and then we got out. We didn't try to replace the government, which the neocons wanted to replace So H.W. Bush did not go far enough to their demands, which his son then, they were in total control of the Bush administration, or the second W. Bush administration. So that's the question from Mystery. And the third and final question, it's not from New England Refugee. Uh, We love New England Refugee, but he did not send a question this week, which is fine. It's instead from Jay. He um he said he had questions, but he just really went off about how he, um, which is fine. You can send your opinions to me if you want. I don't, I don't mind that at all, and I can address them. But he, he had a bold. His first two questions are the things he talked about. It's a bold move. He both talked about how much he loved the professional and how much he loved the sound of freedom, even though the professional depicts a. Um, underage love relationship between a four-year-old man and a 12-year-old. so And then Sound of Freedom has a very different message. So that's a bold move. I have to admire the boldness of this. But he talked about how he liked The Professional. Mainly that he liked Gary Oldman is great. I agree, actually. Gary Oldman's the only good thing about The Professional. Um, he says he likes the music. I guess the music is whatever. Um, and he liked the Tony the mobster character that works with Leon, who's a uh, the older man uh, dating the 12-year-old Natalie Portman. Um, but that's his defense of the professional. Uh, I'm not sure what he wanted to be to say in defense, but I have to agree. Gary Oldman is the only good thing about the movie. If the movie was like uh, two hours of Gary Oldman's character, I think it would have been a great movie. But he's only in it for a few moments. and But every scene he is in, it makes a decent film. So you should just fast forward to the movie, just the Gary Oldman parts. Uh, then he talks about the sound of freedom. He, uh, putting aside the theme and messages, I think it's a good movie. I think there are a lot of masculine themes in the movie. Honor, risk-taking, courage, purpose. They compare it to QAnon, which made me think of something you said about QAnon once. You said something like, you never saw something on the right attract so many women. True. I think maybe the reason is because the theme of QAnon was saving children. Same reason. I think this movie will do well. I think it's fine. I think, you know, the, the themes of the movie seem fine. It's I'm not that anti it. It's more that I think that the topic at hand human trafficking will become a major obsession with the right and it won't it could potentially come at the expense of caring about restricting immigration is that we could begin welcoming immigrants here to stop them from being exploited by human traffickers and going to the second part of the q and like saving the children yes because this goes to the reason why they uphold systemic pedophilia to counter systemic racism because it's a very powerful thing like everyone hates pedophiles and the fact is is like imagine your enemies are pedophiles and abusing children that really outrages people especially women and that's why there's so much women involved because they feel that they are saving the kids in the same way that like white liberals you know when they see starving african kids like we have to save those kids you know for q and honors they think that you know the mole children are being transported around a wayfare furniture and we have to save them and so that's why they get really into this stuff. QAnon's is an incredibly uh, female-dominated thing. And there's a lot of people who get into it who are um, outside of the normal conservative loop. You know, there's a lot of people who are like health instructors and, and into alternative health, which now that's becoming more of a conservative thing. But they first got into this stuff through QAnon and like saving the kids and how we need to rescue those kids who are uh, locked away in Wayfair. Furniture, <laughs> or as they claim as they're locked away in Wayfair furniture. Um, but, um, as I always say, I don't have any problem with the movie. It's, it's nice that, you know, the success of it may mean that there could be really good movies produced out of it, you know, that have the themes we like. But I am worried that the move to obsession over human trafficking could make conservatives embrace a liberal line on immigration. So that's my main concern with that. And it's a little bit, you know, on human trafficking, it's just a synonym for immigration Like, that's really what human trafficking is. It's like immigration. And we have to worry about making sure that we still stay immigration restrictionist, even if you like the movie and you want to help kids out in Latin America and rescue them from, uh, you know, uh, forced labor or, or, you know, brothels. You know, you still have to... uh, Keep immigration restriction at the forefront of what you believe so last movie topic some directors seem to make movies with aesthetics aesthetics that really once again mispronouncing things or having trouble pronouncing things that really appeal to white people i'm thinking of wes anderson or some tim burton movies can you think of any movies directors themes with, that seem to really appeal to white people uh the medieval stuff uh, medieval stuff is always like white coated. <laughs> that is definitely like here, you uh, white people, this is something for you. It's like the Viking stuff, even though there's some minorities into it. That is like a very white masculine movie that they want to make. It's very white coated uh, thing. I actually don't like Wes Anderson movies. I really I've never wanted to I hated the style, I hated the aesthetics. I hated the the charm. It's like, oh, it's ironic. it's 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 eccentric. it's so random. Anytime I see a trailer for a Wes Anderson movie, it's like, I would kill myself if I watched this. I like some Tim Burton movies. Like, of course, I'm a huge fan of his Batman's, uh, Batman films. I think they're far superior to Nolan's films. I would... And that, those, I would say, are the best Tim Burton movies. Uh, Edward Scissorhands is fine, is fine. But a lot of the other stuff, like Nightmare Before Christmas and some of the other stuff, I find uh, pretty lame. Uh, but the, there's a Gothic aesthetic to that, and that would definitely be something that appeals to white people. But if you know really want to say the real themes of white appealing to white people is historical movies, particularly medieval movies, which are and Viking movies, which are getting more prominence now, um, That would what I would say are very appealing to white people. You know, gangster films that's minorities love those type of movies, They, you know, I think uh, war movies aren't particularly white themed. Uh, Comedies always try to appeal to the broadest strand of people. I wouldn't say they're white themed, but like the medieval movies and stuff, which is why they're trying to insert a lot of diversity into that because they know that they're usually all white and, you know, these are not movies that minorities are going to be into, which now they're trying to insert diversity to um, de-whitify the movies. So that would be my answer. To that question. And that is it for Highly Respected today. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed. Actually, once again, I lied. I said this is gonna be a short podcast, and then I joked it could be an hour and 30 minutes. Sure enough, it's over an hour and 30 minutes. So when you get on just topics, you got a lot to say, you don't know, and that's what happens. But that's the magic of highly respected. So we're gonna have a great article that's gonna come out this week. I was actually gonna briefly talk on it, but as I said, we had too many topics. And we're going to have a brilliant IQ supplement later this week. So tune in for that. So until next time, stay respected.